As you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, our biblical text for this morning, you'll notice that verse 11 of that chapter seems to have been omitted from the chapter. Uh, In most, nearly all of our uh, modern translations of the Bible, verse 11 has been reduced to a footnote or offset in brackets, uh, or at the very least, um, typed in a different textual font. And if your Bible, your particular Bible, has footnotes, and you go down and look at that footnote, you'll see something like, some manuscripts include here the words, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Now, I don't say that to alarm you this morning, although there are certainly many in the world that would uh, desire to convince you and me that, that this is reason for us to question the credibility and the validity of the very book that we stand on, the Bible, the Word of God. And this is only one of several such instances in the Bible. And I can remember when I first uh, realized that Uh, there were some discrepancies between various manuscripts of Scripture, uh, how alarmed at this I was. And and my initial reaction was that somebody had been tampering with the Word of God because I had never been taught why uh, this is the case. But think about this just for a moment, because for many centuries, the Bible was hand-copied by scribes and other scholars producing multiple manuscripts and copies of the Word of God. And it would only make sense that from time to time there would be human errors in that process. And that's not to cause us to question or, or, or to have reason to doubt or lack of trust and lack of confidence in the Word of God because instances like this are minuscule in comparison to all of God's Word, in comparison to all of scripture. But most likely what took place here is that at some point throughout church history, uh, a scribe put verse 11 into this text, although it probably was not in the original copy of Matthew's gospel. Nevertheless, the content of verse 11 is biblical. It's true. In fact, it's found almost verbatim Elsewhere in the Gospels, in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which is probably why somebody along the way thought, hey, somebody omitted something from this passage that that goes there uh, without any kind of harmful intentions. And so I say all that as we we, uh, get into the Word of God this morning, simply so you'll know why we seem to jump right over a verse in this passage in Matthew chapter 18. So look with me now at Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Here we have... A rule. We're going to stop right there just for a few moments. We have a rule, a statement, a command stated directly from Jesus to his followers that you don't despise one of these little ones or one of these children. And even in the context of this particular chapter, it would 
probably be most natural for us as we read this or we hear this to think of literal children, to think of of boys and girls or kids. But I don't think that's really the nuance being communicated here. And I want to to explain to you why, because this is important for our understanding of this passage. So back up with me just a few verses to the beginning of this chapter, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples, or the followers of Jesus, came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples. He's been teaching on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we've already looked at a number of parables that speak truths about that kingdom, the rule and the reign of God over his people. And so in that context, his disciples, his closest followers, come to him and say, who is the greatest in that kingdom. And then Jesus responds by telling them, unless you become like a child, you will never even enter that kingdom, much less be the greatest in that kingdom. And just like a child is characterized by humility and lowliness and weakness to a certain extent and dependence on someone else for provision, only those that recognize their dependence on a Savior to save them from the predicament that they're in will ever enter God's kingdom. Only those that that recognize that they need a God to do something for them that they're not capable of doing on their own will ever even be part of God's kingdom. And then moving on in in verse 6 of the same chapter, he's He says this, after already likening those who enter his kingdom, his people, uh, to children, attitudinally, and the way that they think, and the way that they depend on someone else. And then he says this in verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Strong statement by Jesus. But what I want us to, to focus in on there for our understanding of this text today is how he defines these little ones. How Jesus defines these children. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, or one of these little ones who believe in me, some translations stated. So what Jesus is saying in this context is he's using children or little ones as a reference to the people of God. The children of God. And this is not uncommon in Scripture. In fact, we read elsewhere in 1 John chapter 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so what I think is being communicated here is not specifically talking just about literal, physical children as we often think of, but the truth that Jesus is communicating to his followers in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, is that Christians are to love and care for all other Christians. 
Christians are to love and to care for all other Christians. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Despise means to treat as if someone is of no account or of no worth or to disdain, to look down on someone. And so Jesus is telling his listeners, make sure you don't look down on any of my children. And notice the emphasis also on one, not a single one. None of them. As the people of God, we are commanded by our Savior, by our Lord, to especially care for and show concern and love for the well-being of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is consistent with what Jesus said elsewhere. And in John chapter 13, he told his followers this, beginning in verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we're commanded multiple places in Scripture to show a special concern and care and love for the well-being of our, our fellow members of the household of God, of the household of faith, fellow members of the church. We're to look out for each other. And we see places in Scripture, other places in Scripture, where this is not what believers in Christ were doing. They were doing things that were contrary to to showing love for each other. For example, some were were flaunting certain liberties in Christ, even to the detriment of the brother or sister's faith in Christ, Romans chapter 14. In other words, some were, were using certain freedoms or certain liberties that they believed were okay, were appropriate for believers in Christ in front of others who who felt that those same things were not appropriate for believers, and in that way causing them to stumble in their faith. This is the opposite of showing special care and concern for our fellow brothers and sisters. Still others were showing special treatment to some to the detriment of others. James chapter 2, particularly those that were well-dressed, looked like they had it together, those that, that had been particularly blessed materially and seemed to have certain influence, were given special treatment in the church to the detriment of others. Still others were overindulging at the expense of others, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and even others were ridiculing the physical appearance of some. And this is specifically spoken in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 at Paul himself. and The church at Corinth, was, or some there were, we're saying, Paul, you were impressive when we read your letters, but you showed up and, and you're not so impressive by the way that you look and by the way that you speak. And, and so this is another way in which we often don't show care and concern for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Still others were showing indifference toward or disdain toward those who were struggling in sin. Galatians chapter 6. Of the mindset... Well, or they're struggling in sin, they've drifted away from the faith, or or they're entrapped in a particular temptation or sin, so so they're on their own. They've got to figure that one out on their own. No, we're not to treat each other that way as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. And still others were rejecting those that confronted them, that lovingly confronted them in their own sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, particularly regarding Timothy. 
We're not to be known by these things. Instead, we as people of God, as followers of Christ, are to be characterized by love and care and concern for each other. Regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, regardless of personality or or giftedness or, or, or whatever struggle any one of us may be experiencing, because we have been brought together unified by salvation in Christ, we are to especially show care, love, and concern for each other. Christians are to love and care for all other Christians. I know those of you that are following the sermon notes on the back of your bulletin are wondering if we are ever going to get through this sermon. (laughs) But we are, unless the Lord returns first. But buckle your seatbelt because we are going to move rather quickly. So now the rest of this passage, back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, begins with the emphatic. For I tell you, or for I say to you, in other words, this is important. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I think we see through this particular parable that God loves and pursues all of His children because He desires their spiritual good. God loves and pursues all of His children because He desires what's best for them. Spiritually, he desires their spiritual good. Now, this parable of the, this sheep that has wandered away is, is found in a very similar format in another place in Scripture, in Luke chapter 15. But in that particular passage, it has an, an entirely different context. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling this story to, to Pharisees and other Jewish religious leaders about God's pursuit of unbelievers. And here, in Matthew chapter 18, he tells a very similar story about God's pursuit of believers who have wandered away from the truth, have wandered away into a particular sin or or, or away from their devotion to their Savior. So the point being that, that Jesus used the same sort of illustration, the same parable, the same comparison to to speak different truth in entirely different contexts. And so takeaway for us is that context and reading and studying and learning and applying God's Word is very important. But before Jesus tells this little parable about the wandering sheep, He says something in verse 10 that's very interesting. He says, For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And the truth there being that God has sent His angels to serve His children. God has sent His angels to serve His children or to serve His people. Psalm uh, chapter 34 verse 7 reads this way. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. Psalm chapter 91 verse 11 For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways that they will lift 
you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 speaks of angels as ministering spirits sent by God to serve those that will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the point here, the picture here that Jesus is communicating is that we ought to care for for others because God cares for His children. And He cares for them in one such way that He cares for them and shows His love for them. And and the way that He values them is that He has created and sent His messengers, angels in heaven, to watch out and watch over His people. Now, Scripture is not teaching here nor elsewhere that there is... A one-to-one ratio of, uh, of every child or every person has a specific guardian angel assigned to them. We don't find that in Scripture. That's a common belief today. But what it is speaking and, and what it is communicating is that God has sent angels, His messengers, to watch over and care for all of His people. What an incredible expression of the love of God for His people. And now for the parable. Verse 12, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? We learn here in verse 12 that God pursues his wandering children. God pursues his wandering children. Children, Remember the picture here is of a believer in Christ who has strayed away, who has drifted from the faith, whether through an action or through a thought or, or even uh, in theological error, has drifted away from the truth. And what God is saying or what Christ is saying about God through this parable is that God pursues those children. He pursues those that wander away from Him. And how does He do that? He, he doesn't just throw His hands in the air like perhaps we often do, and, and say something like, well, well, Billy made that decision. He chose to do that. He chose to engage in that, or to say that, or, or to act like that, or to abandon the church. So, so too bad for him. He, he chose that course on his own. We often say something like that, but, but that's not the way that the God of Scripture treats His children. Instead, He runs after them. He pursues them. For their own good, for their own well-being. And often this, is, this takes place through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we wander away into error, the Spirit of God convicts us of, of a wrong way. But other times it takes place perhaps through a confrontation of a friend. Or through a phone call in the middle of temptation. Or even through a tragedy that shows up in our lives. But God pursues His wandering children. He doesn't show His love for us by pursuing us when we're in error, but He also shows His love for us by rejoicing or celebrating when we return to Him. God rejoices over the restoration of His children. Look back at verse 13. And if He finds it, this shepherd, this man who's lost his sheep, that represents God here, and if He finds it, truly I tell you, He is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. This is not a a statement or an expression of of God's greater love and and greater value for those that wander away in sin over against others. No, but it is an expression of God's equal love. 
and His unconditional love for His people. A love that causes Him to rejoice and to celebrate when He finds those that have wandered away from Him, returning to devotion to and obedience to Him. This is the same thing that that any of us would do if, if we lost a child and a child had been returned home. We would rejoice. We would celebrate over that reality in our lives. It reminds me of a time as uh, an 11-year-old, I believe, that I had gone to Columbia, South Carolina to play in a junior tennis tournament. I believe this was the first uh, tournament that I had played outside of my home state of Arkansas. And on the, the first night of that tournament, in fact, the night before matches began the next day, all of us who uh, were from Arkansas in a particular age group had gone out. We had had a little practice session together. And after that practice session, we'd gone out to eat with uh, some of the parents. I don't even really remember who, but all of us, uh, 11 and 12-year-olds, going to eat with somebody's mom and dad. Uh, and, and this was before um, every kid that was 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old had a cell phone. I'm not saying that everyone does now, but, but most seem to. Uh, at least in our community at that age now. And in fact, today it's a convenience to have a cell phone because, you know, whenever you need to call somebody, you can whip it out and call somebody or send them a text. You can look up the weather. You can look at Facebook, whatever. You can, you can look up a word on the dictionary app. It's a convenience to have a cell phone today. Even though that wasn't very long ago in that time, it was not a convenience to have a cell phone because a cell phone... Uh, was about the same size as a home telephone, and you had to have cargo pants if you were an 11-year-old boy just to tuck that cell phone away. So because I didn't have a cell phone and had no way of communicating with mom and dad, they got a little bit alarmed when it took a little bit longer than they thought it should have for me to return to the hotel that evening. And I remember coming back and, and finally arriving home thinking nothing of it and walking into the hotel room, I had no idea who and and how I was about to be greeted. Now, the shepherd in this particular parable is described as happy. (laughs) I'm not sure that's how I would describe my father that night. But looking back, I know, I know that he was rejoicing on the inside because... (laughs) That's funny because that really wasn't meant to be funny. (laughs) But bear with me. He was rejoicing on the inside because a child of his who had wandered away, albeit unknowingly, had been returned home. And he could celebrate that reality. He could celebrate that truth in the same way our Father in heaven rejoices over his children who have been returned home. Return to the faith. Return to the right path or the right way. And then finally in verse 14, we see the motivation or the reason behind all of this. The reason that God pursues, lovingly pursues His children. Verse 14, in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. In other words, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of His people, any of His children should perish. And the word perish in the New Testament takes on several different meanings. It can mean to, uh, to literally die. It can mean to be lost. 
uh, it, can be, it can mean to be ruined or to be marred. And I don't think what's being communicated here by Christ is that uh, the idea of, of uh, spiritual death as eternal condemnation. And the reason I don't think so is because in this context, it's specifically talking uh, about believers. And if that were the case, it would be implying that uh, a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, a genuine follower of Christ, could lose their salvation in Christ by wandering away from Christ. And in John chapter 10 and verses 27 and following, Jesus said this, he said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So those that have trusted in Christ for salvation are eternally safe and secure in the arms of a Savior and in the arms of their Father in heaven. We saw this Truth communicated, I believe, in the parable of the sower when represented by the good soil, those that that genuinely trusted in Christ and received the word of God and persevered to the end in their faith. In the same way, I believe that those who genuinely have trusted in Christ for salvation will persevere in their faith to the end. But certainly, the truth of this parable is that they may and, and likely will at various points in their life wander in some form or fashion from the faith, whether it's through a certain avenue or expression of sin in life or, or, or theological error or, or it could be a number of other things. So what do I believe here? I believe that Jesus is communicating and speaking about God not desiring any of His children, any of His people to be spiritually marred or spiritually ruined. On the contrary, God desires His children to spiritually flourish. God desires His children to spiritually flourish. Every single one of them. Notice again in verse 14, the emphasis on any, not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God knows what is best for us. Far better than we know it ourselves. And He knows that, that true and lasting and ultimate satisfaction is only found in knowing God through Jesus Christ and being in right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That's where ultimate joy and satisfaction is found. That doesn't mean that Sin or or disobedience or pride or self-centeredness or wandering from the faith is not fun. No, that's not what's being communicated in here. Certainly those things can be fun. But true and lasting and ultimate satisfaction is found in a right relationship, a reconciled relationship, an appropriate relationship, an obedient relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And so as we step back from this particular passage of Scripture, boil down the truths that are communicated in this passage to a single summary statement or a summary truth, we could say that we ought to care for God's people as He cares for His people. We ought to care for God's people as He cares for His people. God cares for His children so much that He lovingly pursues them, that He sends His angels to watch over them, 
that he rejoices over the restoration. Because he wants and desires what is best for them. And that should serve as impetus, as motivation for the rest of us to treat each other with that same love and care and concern that God has shown us and with the same value that He places on all of His children. We ought to love and care for God's people as He cares for His people. So as we seek to digest that truth and apply that biblical truth to our lives, I want to offer four points of application for us uh, as we draw near to a conclusion. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but these are just uh, a few places where we ought to begin to think about our own lives in light of this truth and how this truth of God's Word might connect with us. Firstly, examine your heart. Examine your heart. See if there's anywhere in your life, any part of your life that you are harboring for yourself out of a desire for sin or or disobedience or neglect of the truth of God's Word. Allow the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God to examine your heart before God. To see if perhaps there are areas in your life that are characteristic of a wandering sheep, wandering away from the goodness and the love and mercy of our Savior and obedience to that God. So examine your heart. And secondly, embrace the good shepherd. Embrace the good shepherd. Once you've examined your heart, repent, turn away from any and every area of disobedience, every area of wandering, and turn toward the the loving and good shepherd. The God who has loved you and pursued you even before you knew Him and has continually loved you and cared for you and pursued you as His child. Maybe it's a lustful thought life. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's an inflated ego. Maybe it's indifference toward the worship of God or apathy toward the mission of God or maybe it's a continual habit of disrespect for those that are in a position of authority over you. Whatever it is, turn from it, repent of it, and embrace the good shepherd. Embrace our Lord. Thirdly, pray for spiritual faithfulness. Pray for spiritual faithfulness. All of us are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. And because that is true, we ought to pray that God would protect us from wandering from Him. Pray that we would be found faithful to Him. Pray that your family would be found faithful to Him. Pray that I would be found faithful to Him. As your pastor, I covet your prayers. I covet your prayers daily that I would be found faithful to God. Pray for your church family that we would be found faithful to God. And lastly... Treat other Christians as better than yourselves. Treat other Christians as better than yourselves. The point of this passage, I believe, is the great worth and the great value and the great care that God puts on His people, every single one of them. And because of that, we ought to treat each other the same way. 
Christians are not to look down on other Christians. Christians are not to criticize other believers or laugh at their, their troubles or struggles or temptations or failures or, or difficulties with sin. Rather, because God has shown great care and love for His people, we are to greatly care for God's people. Imagine the impact on this church and even beyond this church in this community if we took that truth of God seriously as, as if we always treated each other with the same way the same way that God has treated us and the same way that He treats His children. Putting them first. Loving and caring for each other the way that God cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love and care for us. We thank you that you have sent your, your messengers to watch over us. Lord, we thank you that you pursue us when we wander away from you. Lord, what a display of continual grace. We are saved by your grace, Lord, but we are sustained by your grace as well. Lord, your word teaches that your kindness leads to our repentance. And Lord, we pray that that would be true of us today as your people, that we would examine our own lives and hearts and see where there are places that we have been disobedient to you. And that your kindness and goodness and your care and your love and your mercy for all of your children would cause us to, to turn from our sin and, and run to you, embrace you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that are characterized by the love and the care for each other that you have shown us. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for this time together as your people on this day to glorify and exalt you, Lord. And we pray that that has taken place and we pray that it continues to take place in the moments ahead as we respond to you. And Lord, as we leave this place, that you would find us faithful to you in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.